This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Shaw. As a practicing orthopedic surgeon who's performed hundreds of procedures on NFL players and as the former longtime head team physician for the San Diego Chargers, Dr. Chow uses his insider knowledge to decipher injuries to a documented 95% accuracy level. He's the Sirius XM sports medical analyst and is quoted everywhere from Sports Center to NFL Live. More than 100,000 followers can't be wrong. Following him on Twitter, looking for his instant insights on injuries during games. Now, Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another pro football doc podcast. Not just any podcast, a happy new year podcast, but actually the last podcast of the decade for us. We're on to 2020 uh, very, very, very quickly here. Sometimes they say you're on to Kansas City. Now we're on to a new decade. <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the way, that's Greg Peterson, as you guys know, our producer here. And I can't even take credit for this. Greg, you know, I do these Periscope things at halftime and the Sunday night football game, doing the Periscope, and someone said, oh, well, you know, uh, see you next decade. Last podcast, la- last Periscope of the decade. Because there was no Monday Night Football. And I was like, wow, that's kind of true. I hadn't really thought about that. So there we go. The last podcast of the decade. And that actually uh, kind of, you know, I don't know if it's year end or what, or I guess decade end. So this whole episode, we're going to do a lot of uh, year end transitional type things. For example, we're going to talk about the big topic uh, instead of having a guest is actually going to be the changes in football and medicine over this decade. And there have been a lot. But before we get to that, I'm going out of order. As you guys listening know, I try, look, I'm not a media guy. I'm not a media professional, so I can't script out all these things. It's more from the heart and what I feel and being real and authentic. And this was on my list here, but as we are now headed down this decade and transition thing, I'm going to switch up the order of the topics and, and, and actually, I don't know. It's, I guess I'm a little melancholy, Greg. Uh, did you see the Philip Rivers postgame press conference? Oh, I absolutely did. I thought that it was very real. I mean, you could see just how much he had given to the Chargers in general, if that is his last game with the Chargers. He gave it everything that he had, but I always appreciate that about Philip Rivers. Some people got a little bit annoyed by him. I absolutely love the way they went about things. Well, obviously I did too. I'm really glad I I listened to it. Normally I wouldn't have listened to it, but someone alerted me to it and it, it made me happy and it made me very sad because it was a farewell. You know, I mean, it really felt like a farewell. And, and if all you listeners out there could hear. I mean, this is Philip. This is real. I mean, he made a similar speech. Uh, he made a point of coming to a sportsman's type banquet, you know, a uh, uh, sports council, uh, supporters, movers and shakers in sports last year. I was lucky enough to be there and uh, with some small award thing. And he was getting a big award. And, and a lot of times these athletes don't come. He made a point of coming. And what he said to San Diego was, you know, I understand there's all these things in the team move, but you know what? I still live here and, uh, you know, I've loved all this. And, 
you know, his, his tear-jerking line was, and I'm paraphrasing, I just hope that one day you'll look at me and think that I'm still your quarterback. You know, it, the whole room felt it. And, you know, the only thing I was mad at Philip for is, well, I, you know, look, I wish someone from the organization would have said that three years ago, but that's a whole other story. But the only thing I was a little, uh, they couldn't have been a more perfect speech. The only problem is, how do I follow that? I mean, I, my little thing was after that. I mean, that was, it was done. The whole room was done after that. But this, this was Rivers from the heart. This is classic him. You know, I bring this up only because this is actually how I even heard about it because people tweeted at me that Philip said something or shouted me out or something. And sure enough, late in his press conference, he said, you know, he talked about it being about the people and he talked about, James, the head trainer, and then the current head trainer, Damon, and he mentioned all the doctors, and he thanked me by name. And that's just him. It's not just, I mean, this is the guy, we've talked about it here before. On the 10th anniversary of his ACL last January, uh, I guess two Januaries ago, you know, um, over a year ago, he texted me saying, hey, this is the 10th anniversary of my ACL, thanks, and still holding up well. I mean, like, that's not the kind of guy that you see outside, but... Getting back on topic, I just felt bad that this was a farewell. It felt like a farewell. I guess stranger things have happened, but um, uh, that's real. And, and Greg, you mentioned, and let's tie this in instead of being all melancholy here. Congratulations to John Lynch and the 49ers. I mean, who would have thought a broadcaster coming out of the broadcasting booth could be a GM, much less a successful GM? But the smartest thing John Lynch did was he sought people around him. He didn't pretend to know what he didn't know. And congratulations, they're, uh, they're the strongest division this year has been the NFC West. They're NFC West champs and uh, number one seed, the whole deal. And so congrats to him. So why did I bring that up, Greg? Because you said a lot of people got annoyed by Philip Rivers. I'll tell you this story. This is a true story. I respect the heck out of John Lynch. He's a San Diego guy, smart as can be, Stanford guy, the whole deal. And and in the end, I'm not surprised he's successful because he's not just an announcer that became a GM. He's a smart guy who knows football inside and out, who listened to other people who had specialties he didn't have, made good decisions based on the information people fed him. And he was always a thinking guy. So how are Lynch and Rivers linked? Well, John, for the longest time, he grew up in San Diego and Philip lived in San Diego, right? And I remember when John was playing with Denver at the time. And he said to me one time, he pulled me aside and said, I might have been at a Pro Bowl or something. And he said, tell me more about Rivers. I'm like, what do you want to know? He goes, you know what? I always kind of hated that guy. And, uh, you know, because you see the John and the other things. And I said, yeah, but he's not swearing. And we've talked about that on our podcast with Philip. And he's just like an overexcited kid who can't be quiet. You know, he's bubbling over. And uh, he goes, I get that, but, you know, I'm the opposing guy. And honestly, I was really kind of annoyed by him a, a lot. But give me the full story about him playing on a torn ACL and the whole deal. And uh, he said, look, just because of that, I can't ever be annoyed at the guy. I have mad respect for him. And I look at Philip in a new light. And I said, yeah, he's just a football guy through and through. I guess that's how the world is. If, if Philip and John knew each other better, they would have liked each other from the get-go. But uh, since they were on opposing teams, you could certainly see why. And that, I guess my point is there, Greg, that I could see why people are annoyed by Philip until you know him. 
right? I mean, that that totally makes makes sense there. But anyways, uh, best wishes to Philip Rivers and wherever he goes. Certainly, it sounds like he wants to continue to play wherever that is. And best wishes wishes to John Lynch and the 49ers as they move forward. A couple other quick topics before we go to our decade review thing. Greg, did you know anything about the uh, helmet, Vices Helmet Company? I did that? not. This is kind of a big deal and I think an underreported story. We'll talk about the changes this decade from a medical and health perspective next. But Vices could be one of the things that the league and others held up. Vices was a company that won a grant, a competition from the NFL. You know, they, they gave million dollar technology development awards to help prevent concussions. Vices developed a helmet for the last three years has been the number one rated helmet in terms of the concussion testing. So they put that million dollars to good use. They grew to a 75 person company or something like that. They raised tens of millions of dollars. Uh, if you look on NFL sidelines and in games, it's a very commonly used helmet. I think three years in a row it was tested best in terms of collisions. They just went bankrupt. They went belly up. Ooh. That to me was a little bit surprising. Uh, look, I've said all along that helmets can never prevent concussions, but if you have the best one out there and you go belly up, that just seems kind of strange. And I guess the background on that is the other helmet manufacturers, I guess the background on it is you can't make a living selling helmets to NFL superstars. You have to sell to the masses. And I guess that's what they weren't able to do, partly based off of price but partly based off of, I don't know if I'm using the right legal term, restrictive covenants or deals with Rydell and other helmet manufacturers, partly because, you know, they gave Rydell makes more than helmets or shut, they make more than helmets so they can outfit the whole team and then undercut the price. And Vices was just a helmet maker. And um, in this air, health and safety era, it's interesting that the, manufacturer of what everyone agrees is the best helmet, even though it cannot present, prevent all concussions, is now bankrupt. And I don't know if they're going to come out of it. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know what's going to happen to NFL players. I'm sure there's a backlog of helmets for a, for a little while. But I thought that was worth bringing up a little bit. That was a little eye-opening. Last little topic before we take a break and come back here. Some of you may have heard this, but I think it's worth mentioning again. The time of year is all about playoffs, and, and that's, that's all good. But believe it or not, for 20 out of the 32 teams, the day after the last game, the Monday after the last game, is far and away the busiest medical day of the year, bar none. The week after the season is over is far and away the busiest medical week of the year. I think people get a wrong impression of, seeing team doctors and medical personnel on sidelines of games, that's only one small part of what goes on. There's all the stuff during the week. There's all the stuff in the off-season. There's obviously combines, which we'll talk about this off-season, Groundhog Day, etc. cetera, uh, what I call Groundhog Day, the same thing at the combines of Alley and guys. But the day after the season is exit physicals. 
And so all 53, all 63, because practice squad two, have to come through and get an exit physical. And that may be more one of the more important days of the year. And I'm not talking ec- economically in terms of contracts and this, that, the other, and who gets carryover pay or anything like that. What I'm talking about is you have exit physicals. During the season, if you're playing, you try and keep everyone playing. And at the end of the season, the goal is to fix everything. There are three to five times as many surgeries in the off season as there are in the regular season. I remember when I was doing the job, the week after the season was over, there'd be eight, sometimes 10 surgeries lined up for that week um, just to get done. Uh, And then there'd still be more to come. There are multiple more surgeries in the off season than in season. And there'd be a lot of, okay, we didn't make the playoffs. It's December 30th. Give it a month. If you're not better after, by the time Super Bowl rolls around, you better come back and we better take the next step or whatever the plan is in the off season. But uh, the day after the end of the season is absolutely the busiest day of the year for all medical staffs across the league. This next weekend, there will be four more teams doing exit physicals. As the team exits, exit physicals. That's kind of the, the name of the, uh, the game there. So there's, there's a lot to that. So uh, with that, Greg, I think we'll take a quick break and, uh, and we'll be back for our special segment feature, our decade-ending special segment feature podcast. This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Sheff. All right, welcome back to part two of the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Got inspired to do this because this is the end of the decade, I suppose. In my role with SiriusXM as their sports medical analyst, they asked me to do a, a minute or two for their series for ser- uh, the, the year end, kind of the year in review, the decade in review. And they wanted me to comment on health and safety issues, medical issues. And uh, it got me thinking. Well, first of all, I don't know how I could cram it into a minute or two, so I went a little longer. But I'm actually doing the expanded version for this podcast. Greg, if you think about it, when we entered the decade 2010, now 2020, it is a very, very different landscape. First of all, where were you in 2010? I was still in high school out in Hortonville, Wisconsin. So that tells you how much things have changed. (laughs) I have moved to pretty much four different cities. Uh, Hortonville, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Houston, Texas. Let's see here. Portland, Oregon, Nashville, Tennessee, now out here in Las Vegas. I will argue, and as much as you've changed and you've moved, some of that change was expected. I would argue that the NFL landscape, when it comes to the medical world, has changed more Probably. than you have changed. Yeah, because I was argument. expected to go to college and everything like that. It was very unexpected for me to be staying in the same city for 10 years, going from high school to now being 26. Your change is, is common and predictable. It morphs, and this is what it is. 
There's no way anyone in 2010 could have told us where we're going to be in 2020 medically. Think about this. I guarantee you in 2010, if you took a poll, Greg, if you took a poll of a hundred people today, and said CTE, what is it? How many people would recognize that term out of 100? Let's just say 100 football fans, okay? 100 NFL fans. How many recognize the term CTE? I'm not saying they need to say it, it means chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but that the CTE is like a concussion-related term. How many out of 100 today would football fans Today, I would say maybe not the full 100, but today, I would say a good 75%. Yeah, I'd say over. But yeah, at least 75%, right? I mean, like if you said, fill in the blank, what's the next letter? C, T, I mean, 90 people, 90% You're not of people saying say e, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. But if you ask that same question in 2010... I don't think there would have been nine, much less yeah, nine. Yeah, I'm right there with you because oh. a few stories early on that maybe CTE was something because I think about the Webster story and things like that. I think that was just before 2010, but really it started taking off, I would say, in the early 2000s and it morphed with concussion, that movie. Yeah, I would say the movie was made because concussions became an issue. Boy, this is a more melancholy and emotional podcast than I had anticipated for sure. And for listeners, Greg, you and I, we don't rehearse this. I had no idea what you were going to be talking about on this podcast, even when we started. Yeah. And and, in some ways, I didn't either. I kind of had a general idea of the the topics, but, you know, kind of let it go where it goes. Prior to, let's set the landscape correct, prior to Junior Seau's suicide, I think that was the tipping point on CTE because around the league, it was like, well, if this happened to Superman, what about me? You know, and I think that's, and remember when his family had his brain tested, it was done independently. It wasn't just by one group. It was done by multiple groups. And beyond a reasonable doubt, no one could say Junior Seau didn't have CTE. Whereas in the past, you know, in 2010, it was still not much out there. 2011, a little bit, but it wasn't gaining the mainstream traction. And I think Seau's death did that because of the magnitude of it, but also the fact that his family really wanted to find the truth and send it to the National Institute of Health, which used multiple labs to corroborate the findings. And it made scientists in the NFL say, we can't deny it anymore. And it was because of this that that concussion movie was made. And no, I have not seen that concussion movie. I And my reasoning is that type of movie should be nonfiction. And that movie apparently has some fiction in it. And just to do the the subject justice, uh, there's enough there to make it nonfiction. There was no need to make it fiction. By timing, I've been told this and I've read this, but I've never seen the movie, Greg. The movie actually ended with the announcement of Junior Seau's suicide. So, I think Seau's death 
brought it even more to the forefront, which made Sony Pictures do the movie, which then brought it even more to the forefront, et cetera. So, yeah, the bottom line is 10 years ago, there was some talk about head injuries. Look, look at the changes 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was the norm for a football player to say, boy, that was a good one and run back out there, right? That was the norm. And if you didn't do that, you probably were considered weak in some ways. We were trying to change that culture in 2010, but we weren't there. I think in 2020 now, if you have symptoms, you know, you don't just say, oh, I, I saw some stars, I'm good. I think the vast majority of the time you report it. And I think it's uh, the very odd situation where you're uh, looked down upon for doing so, be it by coaches or teammates or whatever. And, and quite honestly, it's even now very common for teammates to look out for each other and say, hey, you got to check him. You gotta, I mean, that changed. I mean, I remember in the late 2000s, you know, 2007, 8, 9, when we were starting with concussions, we were trying to educate players, but they were just sloughing it off. So it really has changed. This whole decade has really been the health and safety era driven by concussions and CTE, not to mention the lawsuits and everything else. And that's a quantum change for the NFL these last 10 years unrecognizable. I mean, we take it for granted that CTE, we've known about it. We should have done this, that, the other. But in 2010, that was not here anyways. And as a result of all this, there's been a ton of rules changes, right? For safety, you know, things that you know, in some ways have affected the league. And there's been a ton of medical changes as well. Just running through off the top of my head, Greg, there, there was even more than than I would have thought. The biggest one is getting players to self-report and that it's okay to self-report and it's good for you. And it's not just seeing stars. We're still living that. I mean, to this day, Greg, we still call every, I momentarily saw stars, a concussion and a hit that has you unconscious for 10 minutes, a concussion. <laughs> Clearly, they're not the same thing, right? But because there was so much trivializing of concussions in the past, you can't call something a minor concussion because you're falling into the trap of trivializing it. And that probably is a good thing to come out of it. But let's talk about the medical landscape, how it's changed. It's a different ballgame. And I'm not just talking the lawsuits and this, that, the other. That's a whole other story. But... It started with, uh, in order to return to play, you needed an independent neurologic exam of someone not from the team. That was one of the first steps. Besides education, that was one of the first steps. Uh, then there was uh, sideline video, replays on the sideline. So what you couldn't see from ground level, you could see again. Uh, then came the spotter, a spotter in the sky the eye in the sky. And when that came out, I said, oh, that's a good idea, but <laughs> that's more than one person can handle. And now there are three spotters, three spotters, two dedicated, one for each team, one extra, two dedicated texts, video texts, one for each team, etc. Six total people up in the spotters booth. 
let me butt in here. The players the- themselves are being more forthright about concussions as well because I think that one of the big turning points as well was Alex Smith self-reporting his concussion because he wound up losing his job in San Francisco because he self-reported a concussion. We don't have all the Colin Kaepernick stuff right now if Alex Smith doesn't do that. No question. And that was big. And, and as much as that was a step forward, that's often cited as a step backwards, right? Because because he self-reported, he lost his job. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't punitive. It's just that it opened the door for Kaepernick to come in and they went to the Super Bowl with Kaepernick. So yes, the self-reporting is a big thing, but besides the three dedicated medical spotters and all their support staff, the six people, there's also now mandatory rule outs. If there's a visual sign of concussion, it doesn't matter if you pass all the tests, you're still ruled out. And so the, the protocol has strengthened. There are two sideline doctors, the Red Hats, one for each team. They're there as an independent observer and consultant. But boy, if you're a team doctor and you do something that's not in agreement with the, the Red Hat, uh, you're going to hear about it from the league. And so there, and that's a different doctor than the independent neurologist that needs to clear the guy before returning to play. The two guys are there on game day, and they're independent of the team. That's a big change. Another big change is return to play. Even a couple years ago, and I kept some of these stats, we would have most of the players return. Well, let me tell you something even sillier. I was at an NFL conference, and this is not being critical of the NFL. This is as we were learning and feeling our way through everything. So don't laugh at this, Greg, but it was true. I don't remember the exact year, but it was about 10 years ago. I said, look, hey, if a guy has a concussion um, and you document a concussion, you can't just put him back in the, you can't say he got a concussion in the first quarter and put him back in in the fourth quarter. He's got to be out. So they tried to institute a rule, the league, that said, they're out for a week. And medically, that's kind of where the rule was. You're out for a week in general. And so I raised my hand and I said, okay, so they're out for a week. So does that mean if you played on Monday night and your player got a concussion, he is now ruled out for the Sunday game? And guess what they said, Greg? I don't know. What did they say? No. So. The parallel was, if you had a concussion on Sunday and you're playing on Thursday, are you ruled out automatically because of the one week? The answer was no. The definition of a week was an NFL week. I'm not saying this. This was many years ago. The NFL is not like this anymore. And I don't think that they even meant it to be like that. I think it was just something they hadn't thought through when they were trying to do the right thing by saying out for a week. That just doesn't happen anymore. First of all, it's very routine that, look, in 2019, I don't remember one player that had a concussion on Sunday that played on Thursday. That just doesn't happen anymore. As a matter of fact, most of the players, about two-thirds of the players that got a concussion on Sunday, missed the following Sunday before they came back. they come back. So even the medical treatment and care of it has changed over the last decade. 
the return to play is a lot longer. And with the new NFL medical director, he's instituted some good steps to even improve the advances the league has already made. Trying to, and that's kind of like the kickoff rule because there was a disproportionate high number of concussions on kickoffs. There are dozens and dozens of rule changes as a, as a result of this. But yeah, the, Greg, the, the landscape is completely different until I really went back and thought about it. I would, I might have missed this if Sirius hadn't asked me that question, but it literally has changed more than you have changed in the last 10 years. I mean, it's gone many, many different directions and I think for the better, but we're not there yet. And there's, there's all sorts of, uh, offshoots that, that come as a result of this. And, uh, what are the offshoots? Well, the whole medical landscape. I think has become very adversarial between teams and players, between doctors and players. Look, uh, that's one of the reasons I really value my relationships. Look, this is not a knock on doctors or players today, but I think the days of a uh, Philip Rivers shouting out a team doctor, the, the milieu isn't just, li- isn't really like that as much anymore. It, things are set up much more adversarially with, second opinions and the NFLPA and agents and teams. And, and I'm not blaming just the player side, but even the team side. Look at what's, what's happened in Washington with, uh, with the left tackle. Uh, look at what's happened with the Jets, with the Kalechi Assembly being fined, uh, et cetera, because he wasn't willing to take a Toradol shot to keep playing and he didn't want to play through his label tear. I mean, that whole Jets fest, that was, Jets management. It didn't really have anything to do with the Jets team doctor, although I think they got the brunt of some of the bad PR. The Redskins, Trent Williams, I mean, that whole scalp tumor issue where he didn't play over. I mean, that's quite adversarial to the team. Uh, the second opinions are absolutely the norm. If you go around the league, there's, there's so many teams that I hear about, uh, you know, the Redskins, the Jets, the Eagles continue to get bashed about all their injuries and this, that, the other. The Bengals had had some controversy and how they handled Cordy Glenn and other things. The Colts have had controversy related to Andrew Luck to even Eric Ebron, who said, who Frank Reich said, you know, could have put off his surgery and Eric Ebron ended with ankle surgery. And, and you know, the, the whole medical atmosphere has become more adversarial. Which is, uh, which is too bad. So let me wrap up this segment here of the decade of changes with what changes might be on the horizon here. Uh, what new things might happen? Well, one thing that I think might happen, and I think it's starting to happen, using injuries, players are getting smarter, using injuries to their advantage. I honestly think Demarcus Lawrence, because he needed a pending shoulder surgery, Use that to leverage a bigger contract, saying he wasn't going to get the surgery until he got the new contract. I don't know that he said that, but I mean, it's not coincidence that as soon as he got his new big deal with the Cowboys, he had the surgery. And it's probably not coincidence that was the timeline for the last time that he was able to have the surgery and be ready for the season. I mean, in some ways, it was a holdout. You look at all the holdouts from Le'Veon Bell to Ezekiel Elliott to Melvin Gordon, they were about health. They were about 
not getting banged up, getting the guaranteed contract. Jalen Ramsey didn't play, didn't play, and he got traded to the Rams, and he played the next week. His back was okay. I'm not saying Jalen Ramsey was faking. The likely story is Jalen Ramsey had a back issue that was real, but he wasn't willing to play through in the Jacksonville situation. But for the Rams, he would. I think you'll find more and more of that. People not lying about injuries, not faking injuries, but because it is a rough sport and because there are injuries, using the injury weapon to their advantage in terms of what they have, timing out things to their advantage, contractually, otherwise, and honestly, uh, heading more and more towards guaranteed contracts. The other change I see coming is the roster spot has to grow. I mean, there were a number of times this year that you couldn't field 46 healthy players. Seven inactives with 53 on the roster wasn't enough. And you'd have guys that were activated knowing that they really weren't going to play because why not? And so I think that is going to be a health and safety change that comes maybe with the new CBA. And maybe that two-bi-week idea that we've talked about for a while, Greg, that, that's been recirculated but with expanded games, 18-game uh, roster with two-bi-weeks, et cetera. Uh, I think that's part of the, the, the change, uh, change that's coming. All right, so a decade of change in the NFL. Apropos for our last podcast of the decade, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with the playoff team-by-team injury rundown. More now with Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. All right. Welcome back to the Pro Football Doc Podcast. And let's go through the injury rundown. Life is easier now. We only got 12 teams to deal with. So we'll only focus on these 12 teams and their key injuries going forward. And uh, let's just run through. Let's do it by uh, AFC, first seed to sixth seed, then NFC. So Baltimore Ravens, they've earned the buy and the best record. And uh, this helps them. Mark Ingram's calf is a big deal. It reportedly has started to run, which certainly is a good sign. Uh, my take is he felt a pop. It was a muscle injury to his calf. The good news is he's got three weeks from the week 16 injury to when he has to play. He didn't play week 17. He's got a bye week and then a whole other week before he needs to suit up and play. Uh, and so I think he will play. The question is, will he be 100%? Mark Andrews got some much-needed rest in Week 17 from his ankle. I think he'll be fine for the playoff game. Earl Thomas with knee and hand issues. I think that was really more of a veteran rest for him. And Baltimore had the luxury of resting some players, and they did. So Mark Ingram is the only question mark. The others should be fine going forward for the Ravens. Next up is the Chiefs. They've been relatively healthy, except in Week 17, Juan Thornhill, for safety, tore his ACL. So that's going to be a, a big loss for them. But otherwise, they're, they've endured their injuries to, from Patrick Mahomes, who's, I think, coming into his own again after that kneecap dislocation. Tyreek Hill with his SC joint. They've had their share of injuries, offensive line, defensive line, etc. But they're relatively healthy now, except for Juan Thornhill, who's out for this season now. The number three seed, the Patriots. 
Tom Brady's elbow, I don't think is a big deal. I think if anything, it's bursitis. You know, if you want to critique his throws, is it his throws? Is it the defense? Is it his offensive line? Is it his receivers? Is it father time? Uh, who knows? I'm not thinking there's much of an injury there. But I think there is a significant issue for Julian Edelman. He continues to limp up a storm, hard to cut off that left knee, patella tendonitis, and uh, did not look that great against the Dolphins. None of the Patriots did. I mean, I honestly thought the Patriots would give him a bye, hoping they would sit him week 17, hoping, hoping they could still get the bye and then rest him for three, three weeks and have him healthy. But that's obviously not the case. Uh, the Dolphins beat him, so they got a quick turnaround now with Edelman. And uh, I think he's going to continue to struggle, unfortunately, as much as uh, as try as he might. Marcus Cannon should be getting better from his ankle. Jones, the cornerback with the groin, that's always a hard one for cornerbacks to deal with. I have to keep an eye on that. The fourth seed, Houston Texans. Will Fuller with groin on top of hamstring. He, you know, he rested week 17. I'm not sure that he's 100% for the playoff game here. That's still a big question mark. We'll have to see as well as Jonathan Joseph, the uh, his hamstring for the cornerback. J.J. Watt is said to, in theory, return with his pack. This will be about two and a half months. And J.J. Watt admits that there's risk. He understands the risk. He may re-tear it. He's okay with that. He wants to be there for his team. And in the end, an 80% J.J. Watt is better than most players. But there's no way he can be 100%. There's no way he can be... Uh, I mean, he's superhuman, but he's still human. And the biology of healing, uh, look, he's going to be able to play, I think, modify his game, but he won't be able to wrap in the usual way because the peck isn't strong yet. He won't be able to keep offensive linemen off of him, but he still could be effective. So let's see what he can do. I look forward to that. Buffalo Bills, their tackle, Ty Nasheki. Uh, still with the ankle, but I think he has a chance to come back. The bigger concern is Levi Wallace, their cornerback, with a medial eversion ankle sprain. Uh, always hard for a cornerback to return and, you know, short week here. I mean, it's only one week here, so uh, we'll have to see. We've got some worry about him. For the Tennessee Titans, Adore Jackson's foot is, seems to be the main issue. Uh, Derrick Henry, workhorse, huh? He really came through, even though he had the hamstring in week 17. And uh, he seems to be able to cope with that very well. I mean, uh, I don't, I'm not worried about him going forward. Number one seed in the NFC, Green Bay Packers. Your Green Bay Packers, Greg. A couple of running back issues. I don't think Aaron Jones's hand issue is a big deal. He got it stepped on. I think he's going to be fine. Running Other running back, Williams, Jamal Williams with his shoulder. Uh, I think he'll play, but it's something to watch. You got a few other guys getting healthier for the Packers, so they're in good position. So in the NFC, the number one seed is San Francisco 49ers. Once again, congratulations to John Lynch. They've got a couple of issues, and the bye week will help them. D. Ford with his hamstring is one, and Jaquiski Tart with his ribs is another. I think with the bye week, both of them should play and be okay. The other interesting one is linebacker Quan Alexander. He's in a J.J. Watt situation. He tore his pec four days after J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt was in week eight on Sunday, and Quan Alexander was in week nine on Thursday. 
they're both making great recoveries. In some ways, it's easier for J.J. Watt to play through because Juan's got to be more in the open field as a linebacker and uh, using his peck more, I think. But uh, hopefully both can return. But San Francisco, congrats. They earned the bye, and that certainly will uh, help them. The number two seed, Green Bay Packers. Um, two running back issues for your Packers, Greg. One, of course, is Aaron Jones. He got his hand stepped on. So uh, that obviously is a uh, uh, painful, but I don't think is that big of a deal. I don't think he's going to miss any time, especially since they have a bye. The Saints, uh, with the uh, final result uh, from the Sunday night game, don't get a bye. And uh, they've got some defensive back issues, secondary issues. Bell and Williams with a knee and a groin, respectively, and Eli Apple, their cornerback, with an ankle issue. Not having the bye is going to hurt them. I think all these guys are going to try and play, but not having the bye is going to hurt them. Uh, they're going to get out there and do what they can, but that's, uh, that's something to keep an eye on there. Number four seed is the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles have been through a lot. I mean, congratulations to them. They're in the playoffs here. They've been through a lot. Miles Sanders with an ankle. It seems to be a pretty significant inversion ankle sprain. If the Eagles had a bye, I think it'd be a non-issue, but they don't. So uh, I think it's touch and go if Sanders can go. Lane Johnson with a high ankle, I think has a chance to go. Nelson Aguilar, I don't think he's ready to go with his knee. Brandon Brooks dislocated his shoulder in week 17 with an inferior type dislocation, it seemed like. A harder one to deal with, and he's going headed to IR. And Zach Ertz, with the rib and kidney, did not play week 17. I don't see him playing in the wild card round either. If you look at all the examples of kidney lacerations, first of all, if it were just a rib, Zach Ertz would play. No one doubts that. It's more than a rib. And the Eagles... I think tried to be coy about it and listed him on Friday with back and ribs. And that's not illegal. Uh, all you have to give is a body part or area. You don't need to give the organ. For example, all you have to do is say knee. You don't need to say MCL or meniscus or patella tendonitis. You just have to say knee. So they said back. And I wrote at the time and said, that doesn't mean it's the lumbar spine or, or thoracic spine. That's actually, it's his spine. It just means it's in the back area of his body, which to me meant kidney. And then Ian Rappaport reported a lacerated kidney. There's kidney contusion, kidney laceration, and kidney uh, rupture. You could call it mild, moderate, severe, not quite like that. But rupture is a big deal, usually is emergency surgery. Laceration, there's different types, smaller ones, bigger ones. It's a laceration, not like a cut, like you think. It's called a laceration. But if you think of your kidneys an encapsulated structure, like a watermelon, if you drop a watermelon on the ground from a height, it cracks open. It usually doesn't crack open with a slit. It's sort of stellate-type crack. It cracks. Well, that's the lacerated kidney. And there's bleeding. Undoubtedly, you're urinating blood. There are smaller lacerations. There are larger lacerations. But it usually doesn't heal in two weeks. So I really doubt that the Eagles are going to be able to play him. I know Zach Ertz wants to play. 
I know the Eagles want him to play. Medically, I have my doubts. Unless maybe he doesn't have a lacerated kidney or it's very small or something, I don't see how he's going to play. If you look at some recent examples, Andrew Luck, a handful of years ago, I think it was about mid-season, week nine maybe, when he had it, the team said two to six-week recovery. I kind of chuckled at two. Uh, he didn't come back all season. Uh, Keenan Allen for the Chargers had it, missed the rest of the season. Jordan Poyer had it, missed the rest of the season. Once again, multiple games. Uh, Miles Austin had, I think, a kidney issue. They didn't say if it was lacerated or not, and he missed the remainder of the season, but I don't think there was that many weeks left. Hunter Henry, another tight end. I think it was week 15, had a lacerated kidney, was placed on injured reserve, did not play week uh, 17. Zach Ertz was a week 16 injury, did not play week 17, trying to play in the wild card round. It's only two weeks. For those out there who say, eh, it's just a kidney, you got another one. Here's the problem. If the, quote, watermelon's already cracked open, can it really sustain another drop on the ground? Can it really take another hit? It's going to become a rupture, which then could become a nephrectomy where you remove the kidney. And some might say, so what? You got another kidney. People live with one kidney. Yes, you can live with one healthy kidney, but that rules you out from collision sports like football. You can't play football with one kidney. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone who's been cleared to play with one, one kidney. Because if you injure the other kidney... A life on dialysis is horrible. Yes, technology is great, but it's just there's a lot of issues with long-term dialysis. You really can't do that to a guy. So I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but that's what I would say on the Eagles and, and Zach Ertz. I hope I'm wrong. I hope he plays. I hope he does well. I hope he doesn't get hurt further. I just don't see it. So if I had to grade these guys in terms of who's more likely to be out and or playing, Obviously, Brandon Brooks is out. He's going on IR. Aguilar's out. I think Ertz is out. I think Sanders has a slim chance. Jordan Howard, maybe his time to, to shine. He's been cleared from his stinger. And I think Lane Johnson could play. So the Eagles can continue to be quite banged up. And they play a team that's also banged up. The Seahawks, uh, top three running backs, Chris Carson with his hip fracture, Rashad Penny with his ACL, CJ Procise with his arm fracture. Left tackle Dwayne Brown with a biceps injury, Lockett out with a head injury with with uh, had a head issue, and we'll have to see if he uh, can clear a concussion protocol. Uh, Michael Kendricks uh, towards ACL. That's what it looked like, and now that's been confirmed. Marshawn Lynch did better than I thought. Thirty-four yards. I thought he'd be well under the uh, prop bet thirty-five yard total. <laughs> He's only under you by a yard. And some would argue that. Uh, if there wasn't that uh, delay of game penalty, he would have gotten that yard and his second touchdown. But Seattle's pretty banged up. And, of course, uh, uh, Jadavian Clowney continues to soldier through with his core muscle repair surgery that, that will be needed in the offseason. And then finally, the sixth seed, the Minnesota Vikings. I think they're not too bad in terms of their health. Dalvin Cook's going to play. I'm not worried about his shoulder or SC joint. The Vikings have rested him so that he could be healthy. Uh, Alexander Madison, I think, will be okay from his high ankle sprain. And uh, Lance Kendricks, the linebacker, should be fine 
from his mild quad strength. I think they were all pulled out and or rested to get ready for this six-seed wildcard game. So, uh, Beast of the Week, our last one of the decade here. Lots of, lots of good candidates. You know, I'm going to have to give it to a team. Maybe to coaches, but the team in general. I got to give it to the Philadelphia Eagles. They won their division, admittedly a division that has likely, or if not already, looking for three other new head coaches between the Washington Redskins, who are looking for a new head coach, the New York Giants, who fired Pat Shermer, and the inevitable uh, new head coach in Dallas. I don't think they're going to fire Jason Garrett. I think they're just going to let his contract expire. Uh, but uh, they're looking for a new head coach. So the Eagles in that milieu did win it all, but still pretty good coaching. Think about this. They had a lot of early season injuries, especially in the secondary. They survived that. And recently, they've lost three wide receivers. They're using wide receivers off of practice squads, a former quarterback and stuff as their number one wide receiver. They've lost three wide receivers on offense, two running backs, the top two with Miles Sanders and Jordan Howard. Their top tight end is Zach Ertz. On the right side of their offensive line, Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson. And yet, they're NFC East champs and they're hosting a playoff game. And so, you know, they've overcome some injuries and uh, through backup play, through creative coaching. I mean, there were games that they went into, went into the game with only uh, three wide receivers. One goes down and you can't even run 11 personnel anymore. They've done some good creative coaching and they've battled through a lot of injuries. So I'm going to give the beast of the week for winning the NFC East with all the injuries to the Philadelphia Eagles. So with that, uh, that concludes our Pro Football Doc podcast. We'll see you, quote, next decade or uh, next week. Uh, looking forward to some good playoff games here. Thanks for listening. Uh, ProFootballDoc.com for injury index and field view. That still all continues along. And uh, happy, happy new year to everybody. And happy new decade. That's it from the ProFootballDoc podcast. Podcast.